knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals and Presbycast. Tonight, ladies, we have Presbycast with us and I think maybe Presbycast listeners will be hearing this also and I'm Colleen Sharp and I have Ashley Glassick with me, and we've got Chortles Weekly, or just Chortles. I don't know how you want to be referred. And we have Mr. Weekly. Mr. Weekly. <laughs> and and Presbyterian. And if you don't know them, you need to go look them up on Twitter and follow them. Well, m many people refer to us as the two most sensitive males on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are coming to us from an underground bunker somewhere. Is that correct? Um, mostly underground, yes. Mostly underground, yes. okay. The humidity is very high in here. Okay. Yeah. In an undisclosed yeah. location, right? That's definitely not in a van behind a Bojangles. So <laughs> we're definitely not there. Every Bojangles has free open Wi-Fi, though, so. I don't even know what Bojangles is. Cool. We, or I don't, oh. think, I don't think Ashley does either. We're on I, I'm like, I'll go with it, but I don't know what you guys it, are talking it's about. A, it's a southern fried chicken fast food joint. Oh, yeah. You're and if you don't, you dare say Popeyes. Don't you dare say. <laughs> and they have breakfast all day. Okay. We do. Have yeah, you're, you're talking to two California girls, so yeah, okay. <laughs> we're, we're clueless, I think. So I think we're going to talk tonight a little bit about Presbyterianism, and it's kind of interesting. I had an interesting discussion. I thought it might be something fun to talk about with one of the admins of the Theology Gals group. We have a group on Facebook. I know you guys aren't fans of faith, Facebook, but a lot of our listeners are. And what, and what we were talking about is kind of how Presbyterianism differs from a lot of Baptist churches on church polity. Well, I grew up in the Evangelical Free Church, and the gal I was talking to is in the Evangelical Free Church, and said, well, we have some oversight from our district, and so it's kind of talking about, well, this is different. So just to give you a starting off point. Well, it's in the name. Um, you know, uh, Episcopal Church, that's an Episcopal, you know, Episcopacy with bishops. Um, 
and I guess we're the only, well, congregational churches, that's in their name, um, but Presbyterian, uh, it's in our name, and of course, it refers to uh, a plurality of elders and a graded system of church courts where there's actual oversight and accountability. And I don't, I don't really know that there's any other uh, form of um, of Christian church government um, that's like it. Uh, we are quite a bit different. I don't think there are any, uh, hardly any Baptist churches that are that have a, a, a presbyterial type of accountability. And um, you know, I think that it's just incredibly important. And I think for I think for women in particular, um, because of all the you know the Men aren't all men aren't always good at handling discipline issues, and and uh, and it's it's good to have a place uh, to appeal to, and it's good to have more eyes on the situation than uh, than just one pastor, uh, one local bishop, or you know one small local board. Yeah, and I know what you mean by a place to appeal to, but. Maybe you can explain that. A lot. Of, we have a lot of Baptist listeners, a lot of listeners who are new to theology. And so some of these things may be brand new to them. Ashley and I did do an episode where we did talk some about this. Well, you know, if you're a Baptist, here's, here's uh, technically you're a congregational uh, independent church. Each church is completely autonomous, really, for all practical purposes. Um, when Baptists ordain... Uh, ministers, they'll usually get a few local ministers together. And interestingly, they call that meeting a presbytery, at least in Southern Baptist life in my part of the country. Um, but it's it's sort of a formality. Um, in a Presbyterian church, uh, each church is a, is um, part uh, connected with a presbytery uh, of, uh, uh, you know, local regional churches uh, in the same denomination. And ministers are actually members of the presbytery. Um, ministers are examined by the presbytery, um, and uh, there's there's real oversight there. Uh, the minutes of every local elder board session are reviewed by each presbytery, and each presbytery's minutes are reviewed by the general assembly, which is the highest denominational court. Uh, and that that sort of thing is pretty much unknown in Baptist. Uh, independent congregational life, and uh, and Resby's been he's been through this like I have, and I'm sure he has something to say about it. Yeah, I mean, um, I I've I don't know that I've ever actually seen a Baptist minister ordained, and I'm sure someone will write a joke about that somehow. But um, I mean, yeah, having having been to the Presbytery meetings that I have, um, it's it's a wonderful form of church government. Um, I would, you know, obviously, obviously say the biblical one, um, and, and the difference in a, in a lot of ways is, um, is the appeal to scripture that we can have for, um, for why we do things the way they do, you know, beginning with Acts 15, that this wasn't just, um, you know, pastors getting together to vision cast, that this was very much the first general assembly. This was the, uh, elders coming together to discuss uh, a very big issue in the church, primarily, you know, can the Gentiles be Christians uh, with Paul and Barabbas, you know, saying, obviously, yes, yes, they can. They've been, they've been brought into this covenant here. Um, and so that's, 
you know, once once you start to see it as that, it really begins to kind of work out from there as to why Paul is writing to the elders of the churches and and why he takes such um, such caution and such care with his description of of who's fit for uh, the church offices and uh, and why that matters because um, I think it's easy it's easy to look back on the early church with some rose colored glasses um, you know it's the you know, kind of popular thing of you know why can't we go back to the Acts two church you know or things like that but you know First Corinthians is not written long after the Book of Acts and um, there's a lot of very messed up things happening. Uh, and, and so it, it's both disturbing, but also comforting that a lot of these same sins that we're dealing with today are still present, even in the early church, um, that, that we're still discussing them. And, you know, thank, you know, thank God that he put a church government in place to, you know, at least wrangle us sinners as, as best that we can. But, you know, without the grace of God, we wouldn't be able to do any of it. Well, let me say something else, that two things that I often say. Um, Presbyterianism takes into account uh, the doctrine of total depravity. Uh, mm-hmm. We recognize the fact that, that no one man, especially no one man, is going to always do the right thing, nor is any one local group of elders, uh, and that um, because of the pervasiveness of sin, uh, it's only... It, we have to have um, accountability and, uh, and and places to appeal to, uh, and in you know in the multitude of counselors, uh, there's wisdom, and and when there are those account when those counselors those presbyters are agreed on their doctrinal standard, they've all taken vows to uphold both in Presbyterian life in this country the Westminster documents. Uh, and but they also uh, take a vow that they believe that they will abide by um, the book of church order for their denomination. We call it the BCO and the PCA. I forget what it's called in the OP, but each each dom- denomination has something like that, which specifies how things should be done. So we're working with an agreed um, uh, body of, uh, of of procedure and of doctrine. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, if 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 you, even if you're just a Calvinist and not a Reformed or Presbyterian person, uh, if you believe in the tea of the tulip, which is where it all begins, um, it, that should recommend Presbyterianism to you. Uh, and the second thing I would say uh, before I forget, just this doesn't follow logically necessarily, but one of the good things we see um, in New Calvinism or the young restless and reformed is that many churches, uh, many Baptist and congregational churches um, now have a plurality of elders. They don't just have uh, one pastor who's sort of the bishop and then a board that they call deacons who maybe function like elders, maybe don't, but these churches actually have elders now, a plurality, more than one uh, elders. But in a congregational or Baptist church, those elders, that board is not accountable to anyone uh, uh, in, a, in a real way, uh, I would say. And to me, that's almost the scariest form of church government. You invest a lot of power in that one unaccountable board. And, and uh, to me, that, that'd be very worrisome. I mean, I'm on a session, and it, it, if, if I didn't think there was anyone looking over our shoulder 
or anyone to go to if we had a problem. Um, that that's that's like uh, that's like walking a tightrope without a net. Yeah, but when has that ever gone wrong in recent memory? <laughs> oh, it goes wrong all the time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like democracy. Yeah. It's it's the best form of government. It, um, but it's it's not very good. Could you could you maybe describe for someone who's still like I don't know what you guys are talking about? Let's say I'm I'm a member of a Presbyterian church and I have some sort of grievance and I want to take it up with my elders and then it goes past that. Could you maybe describe one of you for our listeners how that would go if it you know if it can't be handled at a session level? what happens next and then what happens after that? Could you maybe describe that process? Yeah. I mean, if the session couldn't agree on what to do or you were, you were dissatisfied with what they had done and made that known, of course you would want to go to them first. Uh, if you ran to the presbytery first, the first question they would ask you is, have you talked, you know, to your elders? And if you said no, they'd say, well, go do that. But, the individual member has the right to, you know, write a letter to the clerk of the presbytery or show up at a meeting, although that's not, the, you know, it's not, not good to show up unannounced. Um, but you, you would write a letter and they would, um, they would direct it to the right committee or they would form a committee uh, and they would uh, form a commission to investigate this matter. They'd work with, they'd talk to the member, they'd talk to the, uh, the local session and then they would advise them and they might even, um, although it does, you know, it doesn't immediately come to this, they might order them to do this or that. Uh, but a good session, if they knew they had a member, uh, who was unhappy, I mean, really unhappy, a real problem, uh, or the session was divided, hopefully they would go ahead and, 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 and shuffle it to Presbytery. They wouldn't wait for the member to have to do that. Um, so that that's um, that's sort of the appeal and there have been individual cases i mean there was one in the opc it, a few couple of years ago it didn't turn out to please everyone mm. but it was an individual family case and it went all the way to the general assembly level and it was talked about for you know uh, maybe maybe hours uh, maybe a whole afternoon or something like that so uh, that happens but it's just hard to imagine that happening in the uh, southern baptist convention um you just go to another church or, or you might sue someone. It's another thing mm -hmm. that could happen. Or if in the case of new spring community church, which Perry Noble used to be the pastor of, uh, you sign a non-disclosure agreement, uh, after he leaves the church. So mm, I did hear um, about that. If yeah. you're big enough to actually be made an example of, you probably have a legal team in place to prevent. Yeah. And, and see, pres from Presbyterian in, the Presbyterian church order would prohibit that. Uh, if, right. if a Presbytery found out that a Presbyterian church was making people sign non-disclosure agreements, um, they would take action on that. That, that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be allowed. Um, and every time uh, a Presbytery reviews local church records or the general assembly committees review all the Presbytery records, they find irregularities. Some of them are minor, they clerical or just ignorance, but some of them are major. We had a case this year uh, that was debated on the assembly floor and, um, and rightly decided, I would say, uh, in the PCA General Assembly uh, about something that happened at one presbytery meeting. Uh, you know, an image 
of the second person of the Trinity that appeared on the bulletin cover for the worship service of a Presbytery meeting. Um, so, and that was caught because those records had to be sent up the chain, you know, uh, so there is accountability and it, it often doesn't work, but uh, it's, there's nothing wrong with the system. Uh, it's always the, uh, the humans involved. Uh, that's where the problem comes in. When you guys were talking, I was thinking one time I saw in the OPC something from the minutes of the church that we were in actually addressed at Presbytery. So they don't just glance over it. They really, they really look through. Ashley and I are both, both attended an evangelical free church for me 25 years ago. Ashley, what, a few years ago you left? Um, yeah, we, we moved, we re relocated and found that the only good local church was, uh, an OPC. And so we kind of accidentally became Presbyterians and, uh, now we're, now we're lifers apparently. So we're, the word is providential. Yeah, no, I know. Colleen always corrects me on that, but it, <laughs> it's just funny. We were not trying to be Presbyterians and there we were. So, yeah, but the church that. Uh, and my family has a long history in the Evangelical Free Church from when it began. So some of my family members still haven't gotten over me leaving. But our church did have the plurality of elders, but not beyond that. You know, so it still it still was dealt within that that congregation, that church. If there was a church discipline issue or something like that, that was the end of it. So I think some like um, Chortles was saying. You know, some Baptist churches do have the plurality of elders, but it I think it kind of stops there. Hmm. Yeah, and there's a, you know, there's a lot of um, creativity is generally a bad thing to me in, uh, when it comes to church government or doctrine. You don't want a whole lot of innovation and creativity. But you'll find these big churches like Resby mentioned, uh, Perry Noble's church or Stephen Furtick's church or, and they appoint their own board of advisors, uh, these, uh, you know, um, super, super apostles, um, celebrity uh, pastors or counts, counselors, um, and that's their oversight board. You know, they appoint their own overseers and they appoint the kind of people who would tend to be sympathetic to the mm -hmm. strongman celebrity leaders. Uh, so that's one form of innovation, of course, self-serving innovation, I would uh, suggest. Um, but another thing, I mean, I know of a Baptist church that uh, if they, that they have um, decided that if they can't agree on something, they have a referee who is a member of the faculty at Southern Seminary. Hmm. So they, they, I mean, this is, I mean, I guess that that might be a good solution on a doctrinal issue, but they, you know, they chose this guy, uh, and I don't know if they have to listen. You know, who who knows? But creativity in church constitutions, and um, just like I, I don't think churches can have a lot of unity if they don't worship similar similarly and agree on worship. Um, I don't see how you can be unified with churches that have just make up their form of government uh, and their their constitutions and bylaws are all so much different. Um, so, uh, yeah, I like, but yet I like they all contain the name, but yet they all contain the name Paul Tripp. <laughs> uh. 
So I had a conversation with someone a while back where they told me, you know, I would never be a Presbyterian because I don't see, I don't see God laying out like a hierarchy of like, I think they were more referring to like what you see in like the Catholic church, but they were basically saying like Presbyterianism seems to be the same thing where it's this hierarchy and they don't see that anywhere in scripture. I'm curious what you guys would say about that. Well, I think that I mean the person. I think they just don't understand because that's that's it's very wrong. Um, we would say that the head of the church is Christ, without any one man uh, as an earthly mediator or authoritative figure like the Pope would be, or even like uh, the Archbishop would be in the Anglican Church. Uh, there's no one man invested with very much power at all, or there shouldn't be in a Presbyterian church. Um, and as Resby alluded to earlier, uh, there were meetings of the churches and the and um, the leaders of those churches in the New Testament, and that's where we get the idea of what we would call a general assembly. Um, we we do see local church leaders meeting together, and that's how that's where we would get the presbytery. And in every instance, when bishops or elders are mentioned in connection with a local church in the the new testament in the old in all the epistles uh there's it's always more than one uh so that's where we get the idea of plurality of elders and even with you know there was a lot of um uh even with peter you know with peter and paul and with uh, paul and, and and barnabas barnabas obviously uh, paul had a lot of pull but he didn't seem to have that much more power uh, now that was a unique time. He had um, um, responsibilities and spiritual gifts, and and things were still going on that are different from today. But even then, um, you see this level playing field that these uh, elders were on. Um, so that's where we get the local, um, the, the parity of local elders, and and on a local session, you know, the pastor usually moderates the meetings and obviously has more influence and power in some uh, unofficial way, but he his vote is worth no more than any other elder uh, on the session. And often the pastor doesn't even vote. Uh, and I know my pastor would not think of casting a tie-breaking vote on a, on a contentious issue, you know, if uh, just because it, it's not a wise thing to do. And he doesn't want to to exercise uh, power in a draconian or, you know, selfish way. So, so anyway, that's, um, I, I think that the person is wrong about that. Um, we do see hierarchy of all types. I mean, look, look at the old Testament. Uh, we can also look back to when Moses divided the labor of, of, you know, uh, ruling over the children of Israel when, uh, when they broke down in, uh, what was it? Hundreds and tens. I, I don't remember the, exact framework but uh, it's it's a delegated delegated government delegated uh, authority and it's just common sense at one level but we can find it through throughout the bible um so that's my take yeah and i think it speaks to i think it speaks to the wisdom of god in establishing the office of the ruling elder is that it, it's easy to elevate a teaching elder to you know, a status that, that they don't have. And um, a good teaching elder will try like hell to prevent that from happening. But you've got a, um, 
you know, the ruling elder is so valuable and that you've got an elder uh, elected, you know, almost certainly bivocationally, um, who's, who's working, um, who, who's, you know, while, while elected and, and excellent enough to, to be elected to church office, uh, is still out there working, um, in and amongst, uh, people in, in that sort of fashion every day. Uh, and that's, that's a, just another, you know, protection and safeguard built into the system of government, um, we have a couple ruling elders at our church and um, you know, one of whom I'm fairly close with. And it's, it's one of those things where you, you recognize why he was um, elected to the position, but at the same time that that doesn't put any sort of barrier between going up and talking to him or, or, and in some ways it almost makes it easier. Um, there, there's times in which I could see, um, you know, a visit from a ruling elder versus a teaching elder, you know, and maybe I'm making distinctions that are a little more subjective than they need to be. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not that Presbyterianism is hierarchical. It's, it's to see it that way is to fundamentally misunderstand why the offices were appointed like they were. Um, well, it, our, our church has had, I'm thinking in about, 25 years we've had only three ministers and might have had one for 20 years and then another one for about uh, five or six and i was there when the second minister left and it sounded like just okay this is just you know pious talk this is just trying to be reassuring but someone said the church continues you still have your low your you still have six or seven or we probably had eight ruling elders at that time. Um, we're still going to worship the same. We still have these elders. We'll get someone in to preach. The church continues. And we did. There was, there was not, it was not a crisis when the, when the minister left, um, things continued. Uh, the, there was, the ship was not rudderless, uh, because the senior pastor left. Um, it really, in a good church, it's really going to work that way. It's not going to be the end of the world when any one person drops out of the picture. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, our current pastor's been there, I guess, it's ten about ten years now. Uh, you know, and I'm so you know, in most in a lot of Baptist churches, the the turnover is is really high, uh, and it's it's high in small Presbyterian churches too, maybe because of financial difficulties and various things. But um, but the church continues when there's not just one elder, okay? When you've got more than one, that's definitely better uh, to have that. Hmm. Yeah, I actually was thinking about a situation in OPC we were in where the pastor was could not afford to, his wife was about to have their first child and they could not afford on the salary that he was receiving for his wife to stay home. So he put together a letter of resignation and then we had to vote whether to accept it and it was voted not to accept it and you know he ended up getting the amount that he wanted but if he hadn't then i think it would go to presbytery right yes the well at least in the in the pca um the presbytery has to vote to dissolve the the, the relationship between a church a pastor. Now they're all, they're almost always going to go with whatever the will of the, ch of the church is. And, and let's, let me throw something in here. That's very important. 
there are strong congregational elements in a Presbyterian church. Uh, in the PCA book of church order, the congregation must vote and they must be given ample notice that a vote's coming to vote on a pastor. Um, so the congregation chooses the pastor. The presbytery approves that pastor or doesn't, um, but the congregation votes. Uh, the church cannot buy property without a vote of the uh, congregation. Um, and also uh, ruling elders and deacons are nominated by, uh, but you know the, the, the session's gonna, gonna vet some of those candidates uh, and make recommendations, but elders and deacons are nominated by the congregation and they are elected by the congregation. So we do have congreg congregational elements um, but it's not what you find in a lot of the Baptist churches I grew up in where you had a kind of a vacillation from mob rule to, you know, a local pope um, and a tug of war between those things. You know, in a Baptist church, if you get enough people to a business meeting on a certain Wednesday night, you can fire the pastor. Um, mm -hmm. And if the pastor's got a strong enough personality and enough friends, he can do anything he wants to do. Uh, he can intimidate people. Uh, manipulate them, uh, and, and I'm not saying that never happens in a Presbyterian church, uh, but it shouldn't, and if it does happen, it's very much against the the order, the stated order, not because of it. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard my elders say, one of my old elders at my last OPC say something like that. Uh, the The congregation does, they get one chance, basically, to voice their... I guess opinion or what they desire to see happen in the church, and that's when they, when they vote for an elder or or a pastor coming in, and then they're trusting in those elders to kind of like oversee and and rule over the church after that point. Because um, certainly a Presbyterian church can vote no, you know, if if they don't th think the person is fit. But that I mean, I think that's just it's very different from how the churches I grew up in as well. Well, but, you know, the, that church members don't just have one chance to influence the process because their um, their their complaints matter um, and their giving matters. And those things tend to there are other ways that uh, that Presbyterian churches are influenced by, you know, the the, the average member than just the vote for their officers. Uh, but it is a. Uh, that that is the best uh, that is the best and most significant way obviously mm -hmm. you know i'd like to talk about church discipline a little bit because i think some of our listeners don't completely understand and you know what for years joined my first presbyterian church i actually the first presbyterian church i was in was the rpcna because i was a cal a calvinist who kind of became a calvinist at a wesleyan arminian bible college that didn't know beyond that, met my husband who introduced me to more of reformed theology. And we didn't have the internet. Well, I, it was small back then. It was 1994 and I looked up reformed in the yellow pages and <laughs> found the RPCNA. <laughs> I didn't even know a Presbyterian. I didn't even know anything beyond that. I was actually living, I was actually attending a Evangelical Free Church with D.A. Carson and Ray Ortland at the time up by Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. 
So I I laugh because I'm just the I'm the modern equivalent. The church we're at now I found because of Google. So <laughs> I mean it's Yeah. I wish it was Amazon, but it was Google. <laughs> so we were in the in Chicago area in an RPCNA when we got married and then moved. So we we're in an OPC in this more south in Chicago and then moved to Colorado. We're in a PCA and then an OPC. And I haven't seen a lot of church discipline situations, at least that go beyond needing to be the, the case, you know, going through almost a court case. And in one, I attended everything that the congregation was invited to attend. But I think it would be helpful because some people I think have even some of our listeners who are new to theology, new to reform theology, don't completely grasp how the church di disciplines it happened. Well, let me say, first of all, and any good Presbyterian will say this, uh, and I've got the benefit of a fantastic pastor who's a, a, you know, a seminary professor, church historian, an expert on ecclesiology, and especially the office of deacon. He's a world authority on diaconal things. So, I mean, the, our new members class is probably stronger on ecclesiology than, than a lot of guys heard in seminary, in my opinion. So, um, but my pastor will always say the purpose of church discipline is restoration. Uh, the goal is never punishment. I mean, you never want it to get to that point, obviously. Uh, the goal is repentance and restoration. Uh, and, and that's at every level. Uh, many church discipline, uh, church discipline issues can be handled between two members. We look at Matthew 18, right? Um, if, if, if it can't be handled between the members, uh, then you talk to the session. If they can't handle it, uh, or if, if they have no um, uh, good results, uh, it may come to um, uh, a person being uh, uh, barred from the Lord's table until there's evidence of repentance. Uh, they may be given suggestions or guidelines about things they can do to um, to uh, grow in grace, uh, to show their repentance, to avoid whatever problems uh, that they've they've gotten themselves into, um, and excommunication can happen. Uh, we find that we find good biblical evidence for how that should be done and why it's done and what it means. Uh, anyone can can study that, uh, but uh, there are cases where people have been excommunicated. And uh, they repent years later, uh, or or not that many years later. Uh, there was an elder at my church a long time ago uh, who had a problem, and uh, he was um, excommunicated because he wouldn't wouldn't repent at that time. But he did later, and he never came back to our church. But one of his uh, family members uh, told us said um, he told the elders, and I wasn't on the session then. Uh, told them so that was the best thing that ever happened to him. Uh, it turned him around. You know, it didn't restore him to our fellowship, uh, but his problem, uh, sins he repented of, and uh, that might never have happened if if a blind eye had been turned to it, or if it just been swept under the rug, or if he had just quietly been allowed to, you know, keep giving money to the church and put on a good face and and continue in what he was doing wrong. So. Uh, I have voted to excommunicate people. Uh, it, it does happen. I mean, if a man, if a man were to, uh, let's say, for instance, for example, left his wife uh, with no good cause, uh, 
and uh, and persisted in that. You know, he's and he's going to be uh, disciplined. Um, but another thing I can tell you about church discipline is it's not rapid. Uh, usually, someone would have to absent themselves from church and and, and be unresponsive for a, a period of a year or more before they would be what we would call excommunicated. Um, so it's not uh, it's not draconian. Uh, the idea is never uh, to punish for punishment's sake. And these are uh, you know this these are spiritual things. There's there's not physical punishment. Okay, we don't have stocks or uh, anything like that. So they're, they're, yeah, they're, I was I was struck with the length of time that it takes. It's not quick like you said. Oh no, it's uh, it can be brutally. Um, it's brutally slow sometimes. And that's another thing. Yeah, the, but, we didn't mention this earlier. When we were talking about Presbyterian church government. It takes years to resolve a difficult case. Uh, yeah. The, the phrase I always, I think I first heard it and I've, I know I've said it a couple times on our show is just, just the phrase of there's a holy slowness to Presbyterianism that seems to be kind of baked in. And uh, that's a good thing. And kind of piggybacking off of, Turtles. I, I've never, you know, thankfully, I suppose, I've never witnessed, you know, church discipline at least to the to the point where it would, you know, come before a, a church or anything like that. But, um, you know, going back, I know I mentioned Corinthians earlier. Is you know, we see church we see church discipline to be biblical then as well. Is that you have you know Paul calling for the elders to cast someone out of a church to treat them, you know, as if they were an unbeliever. Um, for the purpose of calling them to repentance. And and when that person does, we see Paul calling them back, you know, to welcome this person back. So um, it, it's always important to state that, you know, Presbyterianism as it's, at its heart is concerned with, you know, worship, but also worshiping according to uh, what God has prescribed uh, in Scripture. You know, that that's where we get all of this from. Well, I was born a Baptist and was one for a long time, and what I grew up with was uh, there wasn't there was no church discipline. Uh, you never it just didn't happen. Um, you know, I know of a church where a deacon uh, divorced his wife, uh, where it was at least a fifty fifty deal, and maybe more his fault than hers. And he continued to serve as a deacon. Nothing was ever done. Hmm. He, re he remarried. Um, now, they would never consider someone as a deacon who had a divorce in his past, but they kept a deacon on who had a divorce, which was probably not scriptural. Um, so that's that's the kind of Baptist thing a lot of us grew up with. But in the a Baptist church that I was a member of, um, one of the members was looking through minutes from, let's say, the 30s um, of a congregational meeting. And the, Basically, it was summarized this way. So-and-so was seen coming out of a bar on Saturday night, kicked him out of the church the next Sunday morning. Hmm. Um, so that, that's what that's what some people um, who are older than us remember about church discipline. Uh, it was badly done. It was um, uh, knee-jerk. It was not scriptural. Uh, and when you bring in unscriptural standards like... Um, you know, I would say uh, if 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 teetotaling is a mark of the church, 
you know, guess what? You're going to, you're going to have to exercise some discipline over that because <laughs> you no, know, it's just, um, if you bring in an unbiblical rule, you're going to have some unbiblical problems as a result of it. Um, but those are the two extremes of church discipline, no discipline, hardly, or just this, um, savage justice, um, that makes people feel good about themselves, maybe, uh, or gives them a false sense of holiness and security. Uh, but what we're always aiming for is something right in the middle between those, obviously. Mm-hmm. So um, I know we're kind of talking about church discipline here, but I was thinking um, one of the things that I realized when you know I started to finally understand Presbyterian church government is that I was protected by it, which was immensely comforting. Um, I'm wondering if you guys have any comments on that. Like, how does how does having a session, a presbytery, and all that, you know, and even even with church discipline, like, how does that protect uh, just a normal congregant? Well, I I've had I don't want to go into it. I've had some personal experience with this in years past, and I was extremely well served by my session. Um, I was protected in a way. Um, uh, again, I can't go into details, but it's a real thing. It really matters. Um, there is a reasonableness about good church discipline. Um, and if it's biblical, um, there's all, there are always going to be people who, who don't like things that are done. Um, no one, for instance, would want to see their, their child, uh, uh, taken off the church rolls, erased from the church rolls, excommunicated. There's different ways to do that because they haven't shown up for five years. They went off to college. They got a job. They moved away. They never joined another church. Um, every Presbyterian church member takes vows uh, that, that, you know, if he's, if he basically says that if you move away, you're going to join yourself to another Presbyterian church. You know, it's that serious. Uh, you, you don't join this church for life, no matter where you live. Um, but people forget that, and sentimentality or family ties can obviously uh, supersede um, uh, good church government and can overrule common sense. But uh, it is a reasonable thing uh, not to um, not to just not to take these things lightly. Uh, we all know deep down this is serious stuff. Um, but obviously there are, there are difficult personal and family issues. Um, and, uh, but, but people can come to their, their elders at any time. Session meetings are open. Uh, there, you can go into executive session if you're talking about something sensitive. Um, but any church member can show up for 90% of any session meeting. Uh, the, the minutes are public. Um, uh, and, here's something uh, this is very important we have this book of church order um, anybody can get one anybody can go online and read it you can read that book and see if your session is doing the right thing I mean I know of a case years ago when our session did something wrong procedurally and it was a member uh, and it had to do with an election uh, or something I, I don't remember the specifics but a church member called uh, the session on it and they repented, you know, I mean, it wasn't, I don't know that it rose to the level of sin, but they corrected themselves. They corrected the action. So the, that's one way church members are protected, I would say. 
I kind of wanted to change gear a little bit and talk about something that you referred to just for a second, and that is the regulative principle of worship. And I think that idea is new to a lot of a lot of our listeners, I know. Let, let me throw something in because I forget who made this point recently, but or maybe I read it. I, I don't know, but we all agree. We would all agree as and again, I don't like to I don't like the word evangelical very much, but as an evangelical or a, or a biblical Protestant, we would all agree that the Bible sh- tells us what salvation doctrine is, right? Tells us who God is and what salvation doctrine is. So we all agree that the Bible regulates uh, doctrine at the at the most you know at the at the macro level at the the bit on the big issues. But if it if the Bible norms and regulates our salvation doctrine, why wouldn't it also do the same thing for church government, which we what we just talked about? Not as explicitly, but we believe in this thing called good and necessary consequence. We believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. We believe that we do have minds and intellects and history books. We can figure these things out and can arrive at a, at a form of church government that's mandated, we would even say, by the Bible. But we also believe uh, that Scripture tells us how to worship. Again, we don't have a New Testament book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus or something that tells us exactly what we should do. Um, but we believe that we believe it's there. So we believe just as the Bible, we believe the Bible is not just without error. We believe it's sufficient. It's sufficient for the church. And the church is not just preaching. Uh, the church is not just sacraments. The church is also discipline and order. And the most important thing the church does is worship. So we believe the Bible tells us how to worship. That's the regulative principle. And further, we believe we shouldn't. The regulative principle says we don't do anything unless the Bible commands it. What most people, and especially if you were in an e-free church, they would use what's called the normative principle, whether they call it that or not. And what that means is we can do anything that's not forbidden by the Bible. Uh, but Presbyterians should believe that we only do what the Bible explicitly commands in public worship. Yeah, we actually interviewed Amy Matravati yesterday, which I think is going to air after this one, and she had brought that up, and she brought that up in her article on Tim Keller, so we talked a little bit about that. So I... And I would like to even ask this, why you've read her article, I assume. Yes. Okay. So this is just maybe a practical thing we can talk about. So why was there an issue with the regulative principle of worship and something that happened in Tim Keller's church? Well, uh, for the offertory, uh, which is in... Uh, the, there's, I don't think there's any biblical evidence that we need a musical selection or performance uh, to fill the time while the plates are being passed. Okay, uh, but there is communion Western, or otherwise. Right, there is in Western culture. Uh, there has come to be known something called the offertory, um, which we wouldn't find. We, we believe giving is uh, uh, commanded. And ordained. We don't know that it has to be um, 
attended by instrumental or vocal performance, or in the case of um, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a ballet performance. Um, the problem, <laughs> there, there are many problems with that, uh, but here's, here's what we do believe in regard to the regulative, regulative principle is that the worship is all about the word. So we have biblical prayers, we have biblical confessions of faith, we have a scripture passage which calls us to worship, there's public reading of the scripture, we even sing the scripture with psalms, and if not just psalms, uh, hopefully biblical hymns. We have a sermon taken from the Bible, and then the last thing that you hear is a benediction uh, that's usually just a, a biblical passage, a blessing that's pronounced. So our worship ought to be all about the Word. Um, ballet is not a word-based medium. It, it believes it, it means if it means anything, it means whatever you think it means, and it has no. We would say that it obviously has no place uh, in public worship, and I would say anything that. Um, that people can clap for uh, has no no place in public worship. Um, so uh, there are a lot of problems with that. But um, uh, even even um, even people not terribly committed to the regulative principle, as we would define it, had a problem with um, what we've come to call Prancergate. I didn't know that was the name for it. To have oh no, that, well, we've had many little nicknames for it. <laughs> I tried to. I tried to push Prince Gazi, but then I yeah. misspelled Gazi. I misspelled Gazi in the hashtag, so it yeah. never really took off. Yeah, my my husband didn't like that one. <laughs> he was like, "That's a bad name." <laughs> I thought it was funny. Yeah, Ashley and I are trying to be more involved on Twitter. Yeah, you know that's Keep one of the reasons. That's one of the reasons why I started watching or started listening, watching, started listening to your guys' show because I I made a Twitter account. And I was following, I think somehow I started following you guys. And I was like, I have no idea what they're talking I told, about. I told you to. Yeah, that's right. You're like, you should follow these guys. And I start. I was like, I have li like, I know they're making jokes. I know they're supposed to be fat, but I don't get it. And so I was like, maybe I should listen, check out their podcast. And then slowly but surely, I was like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> we made a conscious effort from the beginning not to be too accessible. And... <laughs> There's this idea that you can sort of build group cohesion if you have inside jokes and, and sort of your own special lingo and these running gags and character characters. And so we decided to go that way. You know, there, there are lots of um, apologetics podcasts and general reform podcasts and, and where they all talk about the same thing. But we just decided that there was no need for another one of those and that we would just... Uh, we'd be as weird as, as we have been. We wanted, yeah, we wanted to be the palate cleanser. But I think we've done <laughs> a decent, or maybe, maybe a job of or a diuretic. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but, but like you said, you know, Twitter was always sort of a big part and that's why we've had tried to have people on our show who, um, may not necessarily get invited on some bigger named podcast, but still have important things to contribute at least to the conversation. Um, you know what, but always centering around um, how does this affect the local church um, about which a considerable amount of scripture is written. 
um, you know, almost as if that matters in a great way. So um, that that was always the goal from from the start. And you know, I don't think I don't think we had any idea. The fact that we made it to five episodes was really quite impressive on both of our standards. And and I think we're nearing fifty here pretty soon. Um, but we just had a great time doing it and and made some okay friends in the process. <laughs> well, here here's the deal. You know, I, I think I did coin the saying, there's no weird like Reformed weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but Reformed churches are full of weirdos. So if you're going to have a, a podcast that's mostly about the church, which is what ours is about, it sh- it should be weird. Uh, if, it, if it wasn't weird, it would be like false advertising. So uh, <laughs> fake news. Uh, and we're, we're, you know, we're all about the authentic brokenness, mostly the brokenness. <laughs> You guys did a an episode on small churches that I really appreciated. It just I feel like it. T- I go to you know small small mission work. You know we're brand new, not even a year in, and you guys just touched on a lot of things that I'm sure if we have any listeners that go to very small churches or are part of mission works, I think they'd really appreciate that episode. It's it's called Tiny Church Nation, and it's one of the last five or six, so it's easy to find. The guy who has. Um, transition from the PCUSA to the OPC, who was our guest there. Very, very interesting guy. Um, and, and kind of a reversal of the curse, you know, it's the, um, um, just a, a a cool thing. Uh, his story is so. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, at least for me, that's one episode that I think we're most proud of in terms of they're, they're just, there are a couple other series that I've heard close to, you know, referencing just the importance of tiny churches and things like that, but it doesn't seem like there had been a whole lot of talk just about trying to strengthen those churches is actually uh, vitally, if not as important as your large churches and in, in centers like that, because, um, you know, I, I've used the example before is if someone is struggling with something in a big city, they're not more valuable just because of population density mm-hmm. um, that that's, you know, that's just from the, that that's a dangerous thought to put forth in your church. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, to know that these little churches are not only just as important, but also just as loved by God was, was, was huge. And, and um, Christopher drew um, was the name of the pastor who's there. And, and he's a phenomenal guest and has a great sense of humor. <laughs> Yeah, and in my in my presbytery, I mean, most of the churches are small, and a lot of people drive really far just to get to church. And I think you can kind of look around at these like huge evangelical churches and kind of be like, man, <laughs> we're barely pushing like thirty people or fifty people. And but you know, it's just it, it was just encouraging for me to hear that that um, that's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's not like a, an issue with the church necessarily. It's, it's just kind of the nature of all these reformed churches that are spread out, you know, across the country. So when I drive to church on Sunday morning, sometimes depending on the time, uh, on a four lane kind of expressway state highway, uh, there is a, a Southern Baptist mega church. Um, and they have, uh, their own exit, and they have uh, they hire local off-duty sheriff's deputies to perform rolling roadblocks, so their people will be able to get in and out of the uh, 
campus wow. more easily. Um, so, and it's, it's a little galling to be honest that, uh, <laughs> that the power of the state is, uh, is aiding this uh, monstrosity. Um, but I'll say this, even, you know, like you all, you're in small churches and, and Resby's in a small church. Even if you're in that church, you can feel a bit isolated. And if you're what we would call an old school, oh, yeah. a, a more conservative, confessional Presbyterian, you could be a member of a big PCA church and feel pretty, um, pretty alone because, you know, there are a lot of um, bigger PCA churches that aren't that much different in some ways from your average evangelical church. So those people like that are listening, what we call the Presbycurious uh, Baptists and evangelicals who are interested in this. And then, and what we found from our call-in shows and people we interact with, the average age of those guys is about 20, 25, hmm. tons yeah. of young guys. So, I mean, I think the, f the future is bright for confessional Presbyterianism. When we say hmm. confessional, we just mean uh, we all have the confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the catechisms. We just mean people who, who take those doctrinal standards uh, seriously and who aren't interested in um, in changing them very much. Hmm. Yeah, we our family travels a lot because my husband works for United Airlines and then we travel in our motorhome. And so we visited a lot of churches across the country and we will almost choose a small one as opposed hmm. to a larger one. We we've gotten to know some really great people. We you know, we visited like when we were in Omaha, for instance, visited a small PCA and, you know, were invited over for lunch and just really enjoyed getting to know several of the people from that congregation. So I think there's some benefits of the small church. Yeah. And, and wouldn't it be nice if you could walk into any church that 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 was PCA, OPC, URC, RPCNA, uh, ARP and a park and the people would be different and things would be a little different because of the, the area they were in or the culture. But wouldn't it be nice to, to not be surprised by the worship and the liturgy? Uh, I'm sure you've come across some bizarre uh, worship. If you've been to a lot of Presbyterian churches, you've, you've seen a lot of diversity and, and not all of it good, I would, I would hazard to guess, when it comes to worship practices. Yeah, definitely. In a couple of PCA churches that that we have visited, there was it was a little bit different. Well, I really appreciate you guys talking with us. I know that a lot of our listeners just have so many questions about Presbyterianism. They keep coming up. We get a lot a lot of questions and we have actually several gals who joined our Facebook group and were in who knows what church and have actually started attending Presbyterian churches since being in our group. There are a lot of questions. There are some interesting discussions in our group and a lot of questions. I think, you know, we had R. Scott Clark on about covenant theology because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about covenant theology and pedo baptism. One day someone asked a question about baptism, you know, and someone said, well, I'm, I don't believe in pedo baptism because I believe in sola scriptura. And Ashley and I were, <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so, and I think there's all kinds of, of gals in our group and, and even among our listeners with a lot of questions, a lot of questions about Presbyterianism because Ashley and I have really talked about it a lot. I think, was it Ashley, our episode on 
catechism and confession? Yeah, we 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 sidetracked into ecclesiology a little bit, um, which you know I have to say we recently as a church went through we did a whole series on church government, and all of us were kind of like, okay, you know, like this is what we're doing in Sunday school, and then it was so interesting. Like I didn't want it to end. I was just like, good for you. This is fascinating. So I'm still kind of a new Presbyterian, so learning a lot. Well, and it's um, the teaching, a, a good church teaches on that. A uh, good church talks right. about worship and why we do what we do. And uh, you always have new people coming in and people, you know, right. you just don't get things. We have to hear them over and over. Um, but uh, a good church is always teaching, not just basic doctrine or, or trying to provide interesting experiences. Um, the, church is, the church is where it's at. So uh, we should be talking about it. Yeah, I agree. And so I wanted to let our listeners know, where can they find you? Twitter, is that the best place? That's just about the only place. Um, we, <laughs> yeah. uh, if you're on Facebook, you may be able to go to heaven, but it's not going to be easy. <laughs> just kidding. Only kidding. All things, are, all things are possible with God, my child. Uh, at Chortles Weekly, at Resbyterian, which is... Uh, Resbyterian with a W. It's Presbyterian with a W. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I'm going to link those yeah. in our in our notes. For us, we are on a network. We're the only Reformed people on the network, but some great guys, and we're on the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, BibleThumpingWingnut.com, and click on Theology Gals somewhere. You'll find us. Well, we're, we're glad that you all are doing what you're doing, and you're speaking to people uh, that we never will or could, and uh, uh, it's all... It's all very encouraging to us. Well, we, we appreciate doing this kind of joint episode, even though we asked you a lot of questions. We, we appreciate it because I think some of the things we've talked about tonight are the things. Um, someone had posted in our group recently, like, I don't like the idea of church discipline. That just sounds really bad. And I think your explanation will, here tonight will be really helpful to understand that it's not this quick process. Like when you were talking about the Baptist, you know, we excommunicated someone this, you know, threw someone out of the church this morning. It is a, is a wise and slow process. May I jump and, in? Yes, absolutely. I, I would say um, if I had a recommendation for anyone who's feeling like that or, or unsure about things um, from personal experience, um, when my wife and I, had our first child we um it was he was at least a year old um before we became presbyterians and it was it was important to me that we examine this issue and, and look and um one thing i did and i mentioned earlier you know finding our church through google as i looked up where the closest pca church was um, and was shocked to find how close one was to me, given the population density of my area. And I emailed the the pastor and, and gave him a description of, you know, where we were and, and what we were thinking about. And he met me for breakfast and listened to my concerns. And um, at the time I had asked him, I wasn't um, totally sure that we were going to move to a Presbyterian church yet, but I did ask him, you know, if, if we were going to, you know, would you be willing to baptize our child, even if we were convinced of it, but not necessarily going to come back to the church? And one of the things that sort of 
that, that drew me to it as well was he had the fortitude to call me back and say, no, we, we won't. And, and these are the theological reasons. And my encouragement to somebody who's feeling, um, you know, confused or maybe even a little angry or frustrated about things is, um, is most Presbyterian, at least within Nay Park, um, the, the pastor's, avail themselves to make them accessible or at least some elder there. So if you have questions, um, use the contact information posted on a Reformed Church website and ask those questions, and you'll be surprised at who reaches out to you, and um, it, it's extremely worth your while. Um, you know, I, I, you know, providentially, I'm sure I would be a Presbyterian now regardless of what had happened, but um, to be spoken to so so honestly and to have my concerns taken so seriously um you know was was a great thing so i would encourage anyone out there if you're if you're frustrated or or interested in the reformed tradition of faith um please reach out to a pastor or an elder of a nearby church and, and i hope that it works out fruitfully for you and i can actually attest to that there was a gal in our group um who had some questions and i gave her the number of a pca church in her area and the pastor said, let's meet. So is there anything else? I think we hit everything. Obviously, you can find Presbycast. I highly recommend them. If you want to learn more about Presbyterianism, you know, whatever podcast app or iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, um, highly recommend Presbycast. Go back and look at some of what you said. Are you at 50 now or almost 50? Um, um, Presby can count better than I can, so I'm not sure. <laughs> We're in the 40s somewhere. Um, our, our little uh, audiobook serialization that we've been doing will, will put us closer to that goal. Um, but I don't know. We're probably about 45 by now, I think. Uh, we should also ask if you all would like to have our, our producer, uh, Silent Topher. Oh, that's right. I forgot about yes. Silent Topher. Yes. Definitely. Because I think if you'll feed him, he'll come. <laughs> you know, he's not so silent on Twitter. No, you're right. You know, I don't know if you probably didn't hear it. I mean, only a few people heard it because it was on our podcast. Uh, he did a, a a type to you know text to speech thing, uh, so oh, he, he was heard. I heard it. it wasn't yes. his, it wasn't his physical voice? It was a disembodied uh, electronic thing, which is sort of what he is anyway. So, <laughs> right. You can fi follow Silent Topher on on Twitter too. Uh, I'm not sure why anybody would want to, but that's... Um, if you're interested in a lot of pictures of fried chicken tweeted at me, then you can then you can follow him. I will not say his Twitter handle because I have dignity. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to understand any of what we're talking about, you got to listen to Presbycast. I always, yeah. if I'm having a bad day, I listen and here's me up then. Yeah. That's like listening to a sad song when you're sad. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't think so. I think it's I think it's amusing. I've listened to you guys from the start. So you, so you enjoy the tell us you enjoy the bumper music. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> oh, bless your heart. So our bumper music, we we got someone from our hometown who gave us their music. So that's that's our great bumper music if you're listening on Theology Gals. So well thank you guys so much. And it was Thank great you. to talk to you.
This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com.